0: Ishmael Darrow, social news editor for BuzzFeed Canada. That's what they call me. (laughs) Today, we're going to talk about the new revelations about the Liberals' Saudi arms deal. It is now the Liberal Saudi arms deal. It is, yeah. We're going to talk about how the Canadian media has handled the Panama Papers. We're going to talk about this Chronicle Herald story, and we're going to talk about Attawapiskat. Welcome back to Canada Land Shortcuts. My pleasure. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by John Crowley, Ralph Giles, Andrew Lewin, Matt Hollingshead, Rob Schertzer, Greg Warsnop, Chris Figel and Bernhard Neuhoffer. Bernhard, why did you decide to be awesome? Because the funky music theme, of course. But in reality,
2: I found that the program tells much more of a complete picture to really understand what is going on, something sorely missed in much of the news and media currently.
0: This episode is also brought to you by FreshBooks. Ishmael, have you done your taxes yet? No, I'm still waiting for some T4s. (laughs) Here's what you can do. If you use FreshBooks to do your taxes, you can instantly figure out what you made last year. You press a button, it adds it all up. How much of that was HST? You can do other things that I think are really beneficial if you are a freelancer or a small business person. Like you could find out which client you made the most money from. You can find out which client pays you fastest and which client pays you the slowest. There's all kinds of features. There's like rich functionality to FreshBooks that I, I actually am just learning the full extent of this suite of accounting tools for the non-accountant. And uh, I recommend this to anybody who is running a small business. Check it out, their mobile app, their desktop app. Both are stupid, simple to use and basically give you an accounting department if you are a non-accountant. Check it out, freshbooks.com slash Canada Land. You can try it out for free for 30 days. When you do decide to become a customer, tell them who sent you. You'll be doing the show a favor. Thank you, FreshBooks. with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca/canadaland to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis, we talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help Change Mental Health Care Care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca canadaland to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. The Liberal government has some explaining to do after reports surfaced that it was the one who quietly approved the arms deal with Saudi Arabia, despite saying it was a done deal inherited from the Conservatives. Done deal wasn't a done deal.
2: No, uh, the $11 billion of the $15 billion arms deal was approved under the Liberals.
0: I've been doing a little bit of digging into just how this came to light, this incredible story by Stephen Chase in the Globe and Mail today. And it's pretty fascinating what happened. So this is a document by Global Affairs that got revealed because this academic Daniel Turp of a law professor with University of Montreal is suing the government for this arms deal. Like they're violating the law, he says, by providing the Saudis with arms. And he asked the Department of Justice for this documentation for his lawsuit. And it seems that the exact same day that his request came into the Department of Justice, that is the day that these permissions that Dion signed also came in. And because of that coincidence, this information, I suppose their, their, their arms must have been tied. They must have been compelled to hand it over. And it's shocking because my understanding is that this law professor, Daniel Turp, was expecting to find that the permissions for the deals had been signed under the previous government. Mm-hmm, months ago. Yeah. It was a total shocker to learn that it had just happened. I guess kind of like a rush job by Stefan Dion. And if the timing had been a little bit different, right? Like if these export licenses were not yet signed, like a day or two after Terp's request came in, then he would have gotten the word that it hadn't happened yet. And then there would have still been a chance to have a public conversation to stop this deal from happening. So all of this is really interesting.
2: Yeah, the timing is really fortuitous. But also Stephen Chase and The Globe have done really great reporting on this for months. And it sort of shows you don't need to go it alone, right? Like this academic got this document and the the newspapers reported it and the story's getting out there. So it's nice that there's now more of a collective effort, it seems, to sort of dig into the story because it seems like for a while it was really sort of the globe pushing this forward. But it's great to see more scrutiny now because this is a huge
0: deal. That's a nice way to put it. That This is collaborative journalism. I don't mean to take anything away from Stephen Chase, who's been doing great work on this for a long time. I do find it interesting that we are increasingly seeing news revelations that are coming about through academics work Mm -hmm. and other parties besides the media. Now, I don't expect the Globe and Mail to be suing the government. And that's how this stuff was disclosed. So it's not like I'm saying that the Globe should have been the ones to be (laughs) launching that lawsuit. But we are seeing this trend. I mean, Terp immediately gives these documents to Stephen Chase because Stephen Chase has been doing such a good job on this story and is obviously the go-to journalist. What happened next is really interesting as well, because mere hours after Stephen Chase exposes this, this was not supposed to come out. The documents were marked secret. Right. They only came out because of Terp's work. But like six hours later, Stefan Dion's office formally provides mm-hmm. this information to the rest of the press.
2: Right. And then you have the Canadian press saying, we've obtained these documents. The CBC had similar phrasing. Basically... It seems like the liberals just released the documents because they knew the story was out.
0: That's it. It's like you've already been exposed, now expose yourself. And it was effective because the Canadian press headline, the language used is, "Stefan Dion reveals, mm-hmm. like he chose to reveal this to the public. And that got picked up by Macleans, the National Post, Winnipeg Free Press. So there's a bit of spin going on there. I feel like maybe we need to just step back from the
2: strictly media angle for just a second and sure. say why this is such a huge deal. Yeah, good idea. Because... Saudi Arabia has a horrible human rights track record and the fact that the conservatives seemingly agreed to this deal was was scandalous, but it never really became as big of an issue in the last election as we thought, or as, as maybe I thought it would. And now we're learning that, in fact, the bulk of it was approved under the liberals, the Sunnyways, you know, good global citizen liberals. And the fact that, you know, even in the documents, they say that they're pretty sure this won't be used for human rights abuses. But with a country like Saudi Arabia, that's really hard to say. So I hope there's more journalism, more reporting, and more commentary about just what a sort of difficult position that is to hold that you're going to sell arms to Saudi Arabia that aren't going to go to any human rights abuses.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, it's time to have the conversation, but it's not like this is a new conversation. I mean, the, the documents, first of all, reveal more than the, that this was the liberals doing. I mean, now the liberals own it. The documents also reveal that it's not just jeeps, as Justin Trudeau put it, that associated weapon systems are involved in this sale, and we know that these weapons are machine guns and anti-tank weapons, but you don't have to go that far Field. You know, you were talking about like, let's, let's have a big conversation about whether this is right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Get away from the media angle. Like, is this right or wrong to sell them arms? Here's some opinions from people who didn't think that this was necessarily a good thing. Sarcastically, here's the quote principled foreign policy indeed towards Canada's relationship with Saudi Arabia. And that bit of sarcasm was from Gerald Butts, mm-hmm. who is Trudeau's top advisor. But of course, that came before the liberals were in power. We've allowed an arms sale to trump human rights. That is from Roland Paris who is now the foreign policy advisor to Justin Trudeau. Of course, he said that before he had that post. Listen to this one. Saudi Arabia has bought the silence of Western countries by awarding them lucrative contracts to supply it with military and civilian goods. That is actually a very extreme argument because you're not just saying that it's wrong to sell Saudi Arabia weapons. This suggests that Saudi Arabia is purposely giving these contracts to Western countries in order to silence them, silence criticism from countries like Canada, and that Canada has allowed itself to be bought. Mm-hmm. And that quote is from Jocelyn Coulon, who is now Stefan Dion's advisor. Those are some very incriminating quotes you've <laughs> dug up. <laughs> That's all from Stephen Chase's work. So all of those people are now with a team that is arguing something very different. Here's the argument that Stefan Dion, when he exposed himself after he was exposed by Terp and Stephen Chase... His office put out this new defense. What they said is that, like, look, if we block the shipments and cancel the contract, we would have less leverage over Saudi Arabia. Why do we want to have this leverage over Saudi Arabia? Well, and this is from what they've told the press. They noted that under current Canadian-Saudi relations, we have 16,000 Saudi students studying in Canada, which helps to promote a greater appreciation of Canadian values, including the importance of diversity and gender equality. Wow. Taking the language of social justice and, uh,
2: you know, anti-racism, anti-oppression and, and applying it to the mechanics of an arms deal
0: is kind of odd. And if that isn't uh, disgusting enough ethical dodge for you, here's this one also from Dion's office. If we drop the contract, we will simply hand the contract to another non-Canadian and possibly more ambivalent provider. First of all, I don't know how you could find a more ambivalent provider than the Liberal Party. Uh, I mean, they seem to know what's right and what's wrong here, and they're just doing the other thing. But that's like an argument that a five-year-old would make, is that, well, if we weren't selling them these weapons, somebody else would. So we might as well keep the money and keep the jobs.
2: The most charitable reading of this that I can offer is that the agreement was maybe a done deal in principle. And just because the bulk of the export licenses hadn't been signed, that didn't mean that the Liberals would have had a very easy time canceling the contract. But it's clear to me that... This is ultimately about jobs in southwestern Ontario where these trucks would get made. In London, Ontario, it's some 2,000 jobs, I think. $15 billion is nothing that any government would have an easy time turning down.
0: Yeah, I I totally see the other side. Look, it's clear that I disagree with this sale. I don't think we should be selling arms to countries like Saudi Arabia with their despicable human rights record. But there is a cogent and consistent other argument that I think the conservatives made, if I remember correctly, which is simply, it's not our responsibility what other people do with the arms that we sell them. Saudi Arabia is more or less our ally And uh, this is a huge economic boon. I mean, it's the same argument that they made when they were caught spying, which is just sort of like this uh, harsh pragmatism when they were caught spying on Brazil. Like, hey, every country in the Western uh, world and beyond spies on other countries for industrial and for security reasons. Big deal that we did it. It was blunt. I didn't agree with these positions, but at least they were to a degree honest.
2: Right. And that's sort of what I'm trying to say, that there seems to be a conversation about you know rights and no, no, we're pretty sure they won't abuse these arms that we're selling them. Whereas I think the real conversation is about whether Canada feels like it can take this hit, losing all those jobs. And that would at least seem like a more honest conversation saying, yeah, we're selling arms to a uh, a bad actor, but look at all these jobs. Whereas trying to convince yourself that selling weapons to an autocratic regime in the Middle East won't result in human rights abuses. That seems to be like a fruitless conversation
0: almost that the liberals are trying to have. It's even worse than that because I think that they misrepresented themselves. I think they lied. I think when they said it's a done deal, that was a lie. I think that now they're changing their tune and making different arguments. I think that it's just clear that they're always going to go ahead with this because they were not willing to take the hit in terms of the job loss. And they'll just say whatever they have to say. This is like the bad old liberal party that a lot of people remember. This is not what's supposed to be synonymous with this new age, this wonderful new day for Canada. And uh, it's great. CBC News has exclusive Canadian access to a huge leak of international financial data about tax havens. CBC's Frederick Zalak has been investigating this into secret documents for months.
2: It's a hell of an exclusive that you're sharing with the Toronto Star. And 400 other journalists. Around the world, yeah.
0: But no, they, they said the exclusive Canadian partner, which is not true. Of course, it was the Toronto Star and the CBC, who were the Canadian partners of the uh, ICIJ, this worldwide investigative journalism coalition. But I want to focus on the CBC's coverage. Did you catch much of the CBC's coverage, Ishmael?
2: I mean, I saw it online. I don't know if I saw much of it on TV or uh, heard it on the radio.
0: I have spoken to a number of people at the CBC about how this played out. And I can tell you that when news of the Panama Papers broke around the world on Sunday, April 3rd, the newsroom at CBC's Toronto headquarters was taken completely unaware. Nobody had a clue about the Panama Papers. They were scrambling. They didn't have tape. They didn't have copy. There was no reporter. They basically put together their reports from what other news organizations had put out there. Now, as you heard there, Frederick Zalak was on the story for months. That's true. He and Harvey Kishore, who is a senior investigator, he basically like runs like the CBC's spotlight team. They had been brought into the Panama Papers months and months ago. And I've been trying to figure out what happened, what maybe went wrong with the CBC's look at the Panama Papers. I got curious about this because I noticed that for all of their exclusive-exclusive, they were talking about just how many papers there were and how many journalists have worked on this and how long they've been working on it. But the actual news that came out seemed like really thin. The only thing that came out on that Sunday, April 3rd, that was sort of original CBC stuff, was Frederick Zalak's, uh, they call it an umbrella story where he introduced the Panama Papers. Uh, Mm -hmm. Like here's the whole thing. And it goes on and on about what the Panama Papers are and who got exposed elsewhere in the world. And then like buried within it is a section uh, that says, you know, Canadians exposed. Like, okay, what is the local angle of this? And here's what Zalak wrote. Among the leaked records is info on the offshore assets of several hundred Canadians, including lawyers, mining and oil executives, business people, and even known fraudsters. None of them are prominent personalities, however, and none of them are named. Mm -hmm. So then it goes on to name sports figures and politicians elsewhere who are named. Now, the Toronto Star led with a front page story on the Panama Papers in which I think like five or six Canadians are named and they have since done story after story. I think we still haven't really seen the full Canadian angle of this, but that's a bizarre thing in Zalak's story, like prominent personalities. Is that the point of the story about offshore tax fraud? Like celebrities? Is that what we're looking for here? Yeah, I remember
2: that Sunday when the story broke, and I knew that the CBC was part of the consortium. So the first thing I did was, you know, I looked up uh, the CBC's coverage to see what they had written about the Panama Papers. And then I thought, well, maybe they were cut out of this big scoop for whatever reason. But then several hours later, their story started to come out. And that was something that stuck out to to a lot of people saying, wait a minute, so there's all these Canadians, but we're not going to learn about them or they have significant past,
0: including fraud. You know, why isn't that newsworthy? It it was very odd. Super odd. And every report took pains to say, now there are many legitimate reasons that you might have an offshore account. And like... Technically, yes, but not really. There aren't really that many legitimate reasons. Like it costs a lot of money to set up one of these offshore accounts. So yes, maybe you are buying property overseas. And yes, maybe you have some like business interest. But I think that the reason why you would pursue those property deals is because it's also a tax haven. So like only if that it's a legitimate reason, plus you had already paid taxes on it, is this truly not tax avoidance. And the Toronto Star later writes that this is about six point eight billion a year mm-hmm. that wealthy Canadians are keeping away. Like, this is a huge scandal, I believe. And you wouldn't know it from the CBC's coverage. Frederick Zalak's only original reporting on this was a Fifth Estate story that was about a painting. In
1: 1940, darkness fell over the city of light as Hitler's Nazi troops occupied Paris. Jews were targeted, arrested,
0: deported, their possessions stolen and sold to fuel the German war effort. And on and on it goes about this Modigliani painting and it was taken by the Nazis and it was sold and the rightful owners and the 20 minutes or so in, it's revealed that the Panama Papers reveal the true owners of this painting. There's even, like, a dramatic recreation in this report. It's this Modigliani painting of a man with a hat and a cane. And they, like, hired a man with a hat and a cane to sit in front of a reproduction of the painting. Like, (laughs) this is what it might have looked like when Modigliani painted this in the first place. So this is where the resources, I guess, went. Because, you know, the kind of thing we've seen from the Toronto Star since, story after story, about Royal Bank of Canada and about the Canadians who are implicated and what does this mean and what pressure does this put on the CRA, none of that is coming out of the CBC. Which is not to suggest that the CBC has been ignoring tax havens. I mean, this is the real irony of this, Ishmael. The CBC and Harvey Kishore, who runs this investigative unit, for like a year has been doing incredible work on this exact topic, offshore tax havens. Mm-hmm. Incredible work on KPMG, setting up sham corporations on the Isle of Man. And then uh, it was uh, revealed that there were these secret deals that the CRA made with tax cheats where they would get amnesty. They wouldn't come after them with criminal charges if they just came back and paid their taxes, which is astonishing and scandalous. And then the same week that the Panama Papers comes out, this crazy other scoop from Harvey Kishore and his team that CRA enforcers who were coming after KPMG for their transgressions were hired away by KPMG, potentially during the cooling off period where mm-hmm. you're not supposed to do that. Right. So the same people who were trying to like make, hold KPMG to account are now, you know, ostensibly in a position to give KPMG all of the CRA secrets and to tell them about all the loopholes. This is a big story in terms of like what what journalism can do to advocate for the public. And we all kind of know that rich people keep their money offshore, but to actually like hold them responsible. And then like CRA is now in a reactive mode where they're like, okay, we are going to crack down on this. They're basically citing Harvey Kishore's work. I mean, one thing that these KPMG stories have been doing is like struggling for airtime. They're not easy to put on the radio. They're not easy to put on the TV. They're hard stories to tell. And then all of a sudden the entire world cares about tax havens because of the Panama papers. Mm -hmm. But where is the CBC on the story?
2: Right. And and, I think they were part of the Luxembourg leaks last year or the previous year. So, yeah, it's definitely something I focused on. But it has been interesting to see how light some of the coverage has been about Canada. And I think in America, too, because this was just one law firm. So chances are some countries are overrepresented. Uh, But I mean, the first thing you do when you hear about a big leak like this is you type in, you know, uh, what's the Canadian angle here? And it's been interesting to see how light the CBC's reporting was. Maybe they'll pick it
0: up. Maybe, maybe. Uh, but we're already kind of uh, more than a week into it and we haven't seen those, those subsequent reports. So this is the kind of thing where like, yeah, your first glance is going to be, are there any big names here? But when you look at other countries, it's not the big names. It's like the brother of the big name. People get proxies to set up these accounts for them. And what you really need to do, if you're going to find the, the true news value of these, I think it's like 350 or 370 names of Canadians on the Panama Papers is you need other reporters to kind of like cross-reference their work with this. Because it's going to be like, maybe you are doing a story on an unrelated topic, but like follow the money in the Panama Papers is relevant. I'm told that Harvey Kishore and Frederick Zalak and maybe a few other people had a look at the names, didn't find anyone interesting and moved on. I'm told that other reporters at the CBC said, can I have a look? And were said, no, you can't have a look. I don't know what the truth is here because I'm getting information from different people at the CBC. I've been told that this was management's mess up that management thought, oh, like we've been doing this tax stuff forever. It's boring. It makes for lousy TV. Let's not put more money into this. I've been told that this was Harvey Kishore's mistake and that he's like, no, I'm focusing on KPMG. I'm not going to combine it with the Panama Papers. I don't know. So I asked everybody whose name came up and the only person who got back to me was Harvey Kishore. It was a really interesting exchange. I want to read to you some of this back and forth here. So I asked Harvey Kishore, did you attempt to secure resources from the CBC for the reporting of the Panama Papers? He answers, yes. That's clear enough. Was this story given adequate resources by CBC management in your opinion? He answers, CBC was the partner in the original offshore leak stories. CBC committed enormous resources to that story in 2013. Okay. Did you approach Fiona Conway? These are, you know, management people at CBC. Did you approach Fiona Conway, David Studer, Paul Hamilton, or anyone else for resources for this story? He answers, I did not approach Fiona Conway. David Studer was my former direct reporting line and Paul Hamilton is my current direct reporting line. I ask him, if you were denied resources, what reason or reasons were you given? He answers, after I switched horses and decided to focus again on KPMG, Paul Hamilton gave me all the resources I needed, assumedly for that story. It's really hard for me to determine from this if Harvey Kishore is saying, I'm the one who said KPMG, not Panama Papers, or... Uh, He says he went to management for resources, but it's not clear here that they gave him any.
2: Well, just based on what you read, it sounds like at some level, the CBC didn't necessarily anticipate what a huge deal the Panama Papers were going to be or they had limited resources, but to be essentially left out of this global story must be, you know, retrospectively, a big, pretty big mistake.
0: If that's the case, I mean, somebody made a pretty big miscalculation. And then obviously there was some failure of communication to leave the newsroom in such poor shape to figure this out. One other theory that was floated to me also from somebody at the CBC is that this is a reflection of this new regime of lawyers that they're working with in the newsroom. You used to have lawyers. There, there were some lawyers, like Danny Henry, the CBC, who like, you liked calling these guys up when you were working on a story because you knew that they were going to come and try to find a way for you to report the story, find a way to report it, and not get sued. I'm told that there's a new raft of lawyers and critics of these lawyers within the CBC says that they basically want to shut down any story. The CBC cannot handle any litigation. They are not willing to go to bat. And maybe that would explain why Frederick Zalak isn't naming anybody because any of these wealthy people might come after the CBC. All of this tax avoidance stuff and like these distinctions, tax evasion, tax avoidance, it's all in this legal gray zone, which might not actually be true. Like I found out listening to Canada Land Commons this week that even if you color within the lines of Canadian tax law, but you're motivated to avoid taxation, you're breaking the law. So, I mean, it's great that we're finally talking about this. I think that that's what Harvey Kishore's team has tried to get us doing for a long time now is actually having a national conversation about basically like us getting robbed, and trying to affect some change. is one of the greatest things that journalism could do here is try to get people talking about something like this. But at this point, anyhow, I would like to see them salvage this, basically. It's a funny situation because this is such a story about journalistic collaboration, and it seems like even within the CBC, I mean, you want more eyeballs on these files. You want deep context. You want CBC's data team working Mm -hmm. on it. Like, CBC works often... People hoard information. They hoard stories. They don't want to share. But this is a story for sharing.
2: Yeah, and... As some journalists have made pains to point out, not everything that happened in the Panama Papers is necessarily illegal, but that's not really the point, right? Yeah. The point is to expose the breadth of this system that is only really available to the fabulously wealthy.
0: Do you know what the biggest scandal would be, Ishmael? Hmm. Is if he found out that these 350 Canadians didn't break any laws in keeping hundreds of billions of dollars away from the tax man. What can you tell us about the Chronicle Herald last week?
2: Well, this was a real clusterfuck, as they say. A story comes out in the Chronicle Herald about supposedly, you know, brutality at a school where a third grade girl was choked repeatedly by, quote, refugee kids. With a chain. With a chain of unknown strength. Uh That, That was an odd detail in the story. And the source for this was a mother who went by a pseudonym. She was called Missy. Mm-hmm. And this is, was just an incredible detail. While they were supposedly choking this poor girl, they screamed, Muslims rule the world. As one does. And then there, there were some other anecdotes about you know people doing like a throat slitting motion while playing sports, which I do find somewhat believable because kids are... Awful. And they might not even know what that really means.
0: You've done that to me like eight times during this conversation. Throughout
2: this conversation. So the story came out, and immediately people, you know, me too, like people pointed out that this was a very dodgy story to go with based on anonymous or pseudonymous sourcing with no byline because this is happening during the strike at the Chronicle Herald. So we don't even know who wrote it, what kind of vetting the story got. And obviously, in a climate of possible, you know, repercussions for the Muslim or refugee community. This just seems irresponsible to run in that state. It could very well be true. It could be true that chain wielding refugee kids are Muslim supremacist, it's, uh,
0: new Canadian chain wielding. It's
2: like Mad Max over there. Yeah. <laughs> but until you kind of have a few more details filled in, it seems irresponsible to run that.
0: It feels like school marmish until you think about like, oh, that's an irresponsible story. And then people on the right say, what if it's true? What do we mean by irresponsible? Well, the story gets picked up and exaggerated and the rebel and others, you know, this is the jihad in Halifax, you know, crusade against Canadians from these refugees. And then it gets a huge racist response online where people just see this as, as proof of something. All of which, like, if it happened, you know, you can't really hold yourself responsible for how people, like, you know, we present the facts. Of course. But if you have ever written a news story and then you read the story in the in the Chronicle Herald, you're like, that's not a good news story. That wasn't done right. Mm-hmm. I think that their sourcing at the time was two parents and then a grandparent. And it's not said if the grandparent is of the same family. And then the school denies it completely.
2: And, and we should note that the Chronicle Herald did take the story down and left a placeholder note saying, we feel like the story wasn't ready. We hear you. We're taking it down. But by that point, the cat was out of the bag. It was republished on right-wing blogs and conspiracy sites. And then the story of course becomes that the quote mainstream media is hiding the story about brutal Muslims.
0: That's it, the removal of the story, which is the only responsible thing they did, actually makes matters worse because then it seems like the politically correct mafia is suppressing the truth. I just want to know what happened, you know? I want to know what happened not just at that school, but I want to know what happened at the Chronicle Herald, which they have yet to explain. And, you know, who has been bearing the brunt of this is like scabs, scabs. And we did some reporting on during these labor troubles, the Chronicle Herald, they're filling their room with recent journalism school grads, kids who have no options. And and they're taking these jobs and they're getting all kinds of shit for breaking uh, the picket line. We've heard from some of them anonymously saying, look, I have no other options. There's no other job I need to eat. And that's why I'm doing this. So, of course, when this story comes up, the union, you know, this is these untrained scabs are doing really dodgy journalism. There's still management there. There's still checks and balances that this stuff should have gone through. I don't think that it's necessarily fair. To it. We don't even know. It's not byline. I mean, it could be written by an editor. Management takes over a lot of work when these things happen. Mm-hmm. But it's a pretty grim situation, I think, for journalism in Halifax right now.
2: Well, sure. But I mean, I think it does sort of speak to the union's point about you know experience mattering. And at least you know, w- without a strike, we wouldn't have a byline and we'd be able to ask that writer, hey, what happened here? So I think the strike definitely exacerbates how messed up the story was. But so it comes out... Oh, no question.
0: This would not have happened if not for the strike. There's no question about that. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that's on management.
2: But the story's out there now. The Chronicle Herald took it down, but now there's just going to be a Benghazi-style conspiracy that there's chain-wielding Muslim children terrorizing young Haligonians.
0: Good evening, we begin tonight with all the hallmarks of a national crisis. Suicide attempts
2: in Attawapiskat are unfortunately nothing new, but there's been a shocking spate of them. In fact, 11 people tried to take their own lives on Saturday alone, prompting the town to declare
1: a state of emergency. This is the fifth state of emergency Attawapiskat has declared in
0: the past 10 years. Ishmael, I don't know about you, but if 10 of my friends tried to kill themselves, I would not want to face a bunch of news crews the next day.
2: I mean, sure, I feel like that would be a pretty difficult position to be in. At
0: the same time, to not cover this feels like that would be a greater crime.
2: Right. And, and I feel like Attawapiskat has become such a... And it's obviously everybody across the country knows the name now because of the housing crisis, which is ongoing and now a suicide crisis. It's heartbreaking and it, it almost stands in for so many really difficult issues that come up all the time.
0: Yeah. You know, we have all these uh, conversations about suicide coverage whether or not to report on suicide because it tends to happen in like, you know, one follows the next and copycats and, you know, we have all these rules when it happens here. I get that if they're gonna declare a state of emergency, it's gonna make the news. I think it should make the news. And yet I have no idea what the effect of you know we always seem to overvalue like exposure and conversation in a traumatized community of two thousand people where this is happening. Is it gonna do them any good, this level of attention?
2: I don't know. Well I I think there's probably good coverage and bad coverage. Now, if you think back to Idle No More and when Ottawa Piscat first became widely known for its housing crisis, the conversation quickly turned into about, you know, how lazy or ignorant or whatever people were. It yeah. Quickly turned into a very nasty conversation. Or about, whether
0: Teresa Spence has had fish broth or not.
2: Right. Whether it was a true hunger strike. But I think at least my impression is that this time around, the Ottawa Piscat story is being treated very carefully. Yeah. And even the commentary has been pretty measured because 10 or 11 suicide attempts by young people in one night, over 100 suicide attempts over a year in one community, no matter how deeply seated your your issues with First Nations governance or whatever, you can't ignore the story.
0: Oh, it's unimaginably horrific. And, I, and I, whatever usual responses you talk about Aboriginal issues, it triggers and comments boards. Like you'd have to be lacking humanity completely not to just feel horrible about this. I think BuzzFeed approached the story in a really good way. I'll give props to your organization for that. What I saw Buzzfeed do was say like, okay, we're not gonna ignore your story, nor are we gonna parachute into your community and like aggressively buttonhole you to talk about this as it's still happening. The story I read from BuzzFeed was, what are the teens, the youth of Ottawa Piscat themselves saying about this? And the way you got that information was not by kind of like compelling them to go public, but by looking at the social media trail of what have they chosen to make public. Mm-hmm. And it was like aggregation, especially BuzzFeed aggregation, always gets a bad rap. But this was like... This makes a strong case for aggregation. What was it? Some sort of like community center meeting where young people got together and said, here's what we have in this community. Here's what we could use in this community. Here's what we can do to improve things in this community. Mm-hmm. And BuzzFeed is here reporting on what this group of young people arrived at at this gymnasium meeting. Or right. Remember. And that was
2: done by my colleague, Emma Loop, who does great work in Ottawa. And I don't want to talk about BuzzFeed too much, but it is a part of our ethos that we try to boost voices if and conversations if they're already happening. So this seems like a good way to cover that. And uh, ultimately, it does become about what the community is going through and what they need. So hopefully that helps, I guess, get the message across. But yeah, it's a terribly difficult story.
0: When I hear Jean Chrétien say, oh, they all need to just move. Mm -hmm. Just as Scott Gilmore from McLean said, oh, yeah, people in the north need to just move. I get both sides of that. I mean, I feel like to say that to people, especially when they're going through these awful circumstances, is so arrogant for us to just say, you should just move, just denies everything mm-hmm. about w- what a person may feel or, or what's important to them. And then I have this, I don't know if you call it a conservative or a pragmatic, there is a voice in me saying like, yeah, on a policy level, I think that's a disgusting thing to suggest. But if I had a buddy in Ottawa, I would say, oh yeah, just, just get out of there. Like there's no economic future. It's not a good place to be. You can sleep on my couch. Things are better here. I would totally give that advice.
2: I guess you could find that argument appealing, but- Certainly in the immediate aftermath of any crisis, be it a suicide crisis or a housing crisis, even if that were the right policy, which I'm not suggesting it is, it's just also incredibly unhelpful, right? Yeah. Because the situation in that community is what it is now. And uh, it's up to the rest of the country to pay attention and do it.
0: Yeah. Um, like I've, if you're 14 in Ottawa, Piscayte, hearing jean Chrétien, it's like, thanks a lot. Thank you.
2: Right. Because what does that do for you? Yeah. It's just, I want to be careful not to talk out of my ass here. So I'll just say that I've, I've seen lots of uh, indigenous writers whom I really respect pointing out that this is not an isolated issue, right? The suicide epidemic and the housing crisis and, you know, colonialism and everything else that Piscat and other communities like it deal with, they're all intermingled, right? So I think it's going to be important for us to not just parachute in to these communities whenever something blows up, but to have a more holistic approach to sort of looking at the community?
0: It's a great point. I mean, there are communities in Northern Quebec that have 50% youth suicide rates. And when stories like this, be it about suicide or housing come up, you're right that we're moving to a more compassionate way about talking about it, but it's almost becoming this like reflexive sympathy thing we do where we like, we take a moment and we say, oh God, that's awful. And then we move on. I think the first step is just to say, I actually don't know why that's happening. I have some concept of cross-generational trauma. I have some concept of the the dire financial situation, the, the resources that are lacking, but to kind of like humble ourselves as people who have never experienced anything close to this and just like try to learn what the hell is going on because this is, I think, the most shameful thing going on in Canada right now when young people don't even want to live.
2: Yeah, all I can say is that there's been some really excellent reporting, just purely from like a media angle. There's been some really great reporting on on Awapiskat last week. APTN especially has done really great work. Yeah. So I think it's going to be just hearing what people on the ground say they need. And then as a country, you know, trying to do something about that.
0: And Ishmael, I am aware that you and I having this conversation, there are voices that need to be heard here that uh, we would like to hear from with reference to this or other Indigenous issues. So we are always looking for those stories at editor at canadalandshow.com. Ishmael, thank you. You're welcome. That was your Canada Land Shortcuts for this week. You can always email me. I read them all and I respond when I can. And I am at jesse at canadalandshow.com. We are on Twitter at Canadaland. Ishmael, where can people find you? I'm at buzzbeat.com and uh, Twitter at ID4RO. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash Quick note that we're looking to do a show where we are going to follow up on stories we've done in the past, and we're going to do that by responding to your questions about stories that we've covered in the past. Send those questions to editor at CanadaLandShow.com. The next episode of CanadaLand will be up on Monday. The next episode of CanadaLand Commons will be up on Tuesday. The producer of the show is Kevin Sexton. If you like what we do, please support us. (laughs) for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you.
1: A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will let me serve in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.